Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century, brought to you by the Asia Group. Hello, I'm Kurt Campbell. And I'm Rich Verma. Each episode will bring you into the discussion with the most prominent policymakers, artists, journalists, business, and thought leaders driving the Indo-Pacific from New Delhi to Tokyo. Thanks, Rich. Today, we're thrilled to be joined by one of the country's foremost experts on India and China, our good friend Ashley Tellis. Ashley currently holds the Tata Chair for Strategic Affairs and is a senior fellow at the Kearney Endowment for International Peace here in Washington, D.C. Additionally, he serves as a counselor at the National Bureau of Asian Research, where he's the research director of the Bureau's Strategic Asia Program. In addition to his remarkable expertise, he has served in the United States government at the highest of levels during George W. Bush's second term. Ashley served as the special assistant to the president and senior director for strategic planning in Southwest Asia at the National Security Council. He was also previously a senior advisor to the ambassador at the U.S. Embassy in New Delhi. Ashley, thank you again for joining us. We're really excited you're here with us. I'm delighted to be here, Kurt. Thank you. Great. So I'll just start off just as a general proposition. So I remember a few years ago when I made a speech or a talk about how the United States was maybe preoccupied away from Asia. And my friends in the Bush administration attacked me and said, no, no, we're fully engaged. And the only one person, only one friend came to my defense and said, you know, Kurt, you're right. We are too much focused on the Middle East and South Asia. We need to spend more time on Asia and India. Um, so looking back now over these last 20 years, did the United States go on a big strategic detour and can we recover? I think in retrospect, there's no doubt uh, that what happened in the Bush years, particularly in Iraq, uh, took our attention away from the most momentous transformation that has occurred in the post-war period. And that is the rise of China as a new great power. We dealt with the challenges of the Soviet Union during the Cold War. After that, China was on the horizon. And I think we lost a good decade, not to mention considerable blood and treasure, because of the commitments that we ended up with in Iraq. Now, thankfully, we were able during the Bush years to make investments in India that are still in the process of paying off. But if one were to do the net assessment, there's no doubt in my mind that America lost more than it gained because of the detour in Iraq. Now, Ashley, you, you've written a lot uh, over the years about uh, not only India, but obviously China's uh, rise, as, as you just said. And I'm, I'm quoting from one of your recent pieces. You say, quote, evidence suggests China is on its way to becoming a peer of the United States. In other words, this is our, this is our modern challenge. Uh, just say a little bit more about that. Obviously, we were focused, we were on a detour, but a lot was happening in China at, at the same time to give them some some lift and some capacity. Just give us a, a view of what was taking place. So we have a success in China at the economic level, which has slowly been materializing over a period of some 30 odd years. Uh, the irony of that success is that it's a made-in-the-USA story, that the United States engineered China's success by helping to bring China into the international economic system. We were China's sponsors. Uh, 
It starts off because we were trying to wean China away from the Soviet Union to consolidate that weaning after 1972, use China as a lever to strengthen containment of the Soviet Union. But over a period of time, uh, that evolved in different directions. Mm -hmm. And China made smart choices between 1978 and 2000. It progressively opened up its economy, but always under the tutelage and the control of the Communist Party. I mean, the party was very careful not to lose control of the process. And by the time they come into the World Trade Organization, uh, 2000 and after, China's sort of the conditions for explosive growth are essentially put in place as a result of that integration. And so what we see today is should come as no surprise to anyone who watches China. It's the maturation of a process that we were very much uh, part and parcel of. And we have to deal with those consequences. But you have a lot of uh, hand-wringing hand now here in the United States, a lot of looking back, we got it wrong, we got it wrong. And I, I wonder if that's really the right um, analysis or is it we did what we had to do because of the times. We knew that it came with some risks, but now it requires a, a wholly different approach. And what I've been concerned about with the president's approach is that it's like shooting through a straw. You know, you may, you may be able to get uh, some market access, some IP protections, but it has nothing to do with the totality of what is actually happening in Asia and with China. I'm glad you raised that, Rich, because I don't see China as simply a failure. I think it would be terribly myopic and it wouldn't do justice to the reality. Uh, China is a success story, but as with all success stories, there are pluses and there are minuses. And in terms of our national strategy, we ought to be creative to keep what is best about China open, while dealing with the challenges that arise because of China's growth. Now that requires a strategy that is fundamentally subtle because it, it requires us to deal with aberrations and it requires us to deal with structural rigidities. But there is a danger that in the desire to confront a rising China, we end up throwing the baby out with the bathwater. That is, in the effort to constrain China or the excesses uh, in China, we destroy the global trading system. Mm -hmm. And if we end up doing that, I think that would be disastrous for the United States itself going forward. Ashley, very, very powerful comments. I, I just came from a session in which there was, you know, almost every group in Washington these days is contemplating the end of engagement and what's next in the US-China relationship. And I was struck, really smart people around the table no basic agreement on what I would call fundamental parameters, right? One group believing that it was still possible to um, exercise and sustain American primacy. Another group, I think, kind of bemoaning the loss of American leadership, worried about American decline. A third group that believed that President Xi would stop at nothing in his quest for global primacy and perhaps the last group that thought that the overwhelming challenges of common issues like climate change would force the United States and China together. I'd be curious at what your fundamental philosophy is. 
I read your most recent writings to suggest that China is not rising, but that it has risen, that it is a strong strategic competitor, but also there are arenas where the United States and China will be forced to cooperate. But I'd like to hear from you, what do you think the next period is likely to have in store for U.S.-China relations? And how do you think the dominant storyline about China is going to play out here in the United States? So there are several strands, I think, to this future. First, I think we are moving slowly into an era of bipolarity. In that, China and the United States will be in a band quite separated from the rest of the countries in the international system, just in terms of sheer Mm. capacity. India will hate that, right? Uh, Probably. (laughs) (laughs) They hate bipolarity. But that's a reality that they'll have to live with, and I suspect that's a reality they're preparing for, right? Uh, But having said that, this will still be an asymmetrical bipolarity. That is, I don't see China being a peer across all dimensions of power. Only the United States is going to remain a comprehensively capable power for quite some time to come. So I see China as being in the same league as we are, but with still uh, considerable weaknesses. And so the strategy for us must be to take them seriously as a competitor because they have a different vision of how to organize the world. They have a different vision of their relationship with us. But we also have to recognize that American prosperity and much of America's future growth is going to derive from our continued linkages with China and our continued linkages with the rest of Pacific Asia, not to mention Indo-Pacific Asia. And so the issue for us is how do you strengthen those bonds which help advance our common interests while dealing with those challenges where we're going to have significant differences. You know, I'm grateful to be in the presence of two people, probably more than any other, that have played a role in helping advance the U.S.-Indian relationship over the course of the last 15 or 20 years. I remember when I was at the State Department working on Asia, you had encouraged me to begin a dialogue with Indian friends to talk about Asia. I was uncertain. I didn't have as much confidence that it'd be effective or successful. And it turned out to be one of the things that I enjoyed the most, frankly. But I will tell you in our first meeting, I, I won't tell me tell you who the interlocutor was, but it was not a person that, you know, initially was that friendly to the United States. And as we were sitting and discussing, he was just going on and on about his criticism of the United States more generally. And about halfway through the dialogue, and I was given careful talking points and my State Department colleagues were, you know, trying to guide me through. I said, you know, I I, I interrupted and I said, I'm going to say something that's going to really piss you off, (laughs) but I want you to just listen carefully. And then there was just, just anxiety in the room. And I said, you know, we are destined to be closer friends. And I said, I know that just cuts like a knife, but that's going to happen. <laughs> so is that happening? And is that our trajectory? Even with all the difficulties that we have with you know, this president and trade, 
are the United States and India destined to be closer friends? I think broadly speaking, yes. Broadly speaking. <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's the caveat there. That's yeah. the caveat, in part mm. because I think as long as China's rise continues, there will be compelling reasons for New Delhi to look to Washington as a partner. Because even as China challenges the United States, it challenges India far more quickly and far more closely. And so India is looking out for partners that it can work with in dealing with a variety of challenges, uh, none of which is probably more important than the challenge posed by China. But there are two or three issues that I think qualify uh, that judgment about trajectory. Um, first is whether India will be able to do the minimal necessary to stay competitive in this race. And that involves continued economic reform, maintaining its political system of openness and so on and so forth. Uh, the second has to do with uh, sort of regime transformations inside India. You know, will India be the country that we have gotten used to and gotten used to liking? Or is India's internal character going to change? And third, and I would say equally important, is the United States. You know, what is the U.S. role in the world going to be? Are we going to be looking for partners? Do we see an open international system? Our proudest creation, I would argue, since 45, as something that is worth protecting and defending. And if we end up in a situation where we don't care about the open international order, then the temptations on the part of countries like India to look to the United States, that temptation is going to be minimized. Yeah, so let's let's pick up on that third point because that is seems to be the prevailing view of the Trump administration, which is alliances have not necessarily benefited us. They have strained us. We've been taken advantage of. These partnerships and trade agreements have not benefited American workers. Uh, the world has basically taken advantage of us over seventy years, and and now the time is you know we're we're fighting back. But that also means an America that doesn't necessarily look or seek to advance partnerships in the world is not certainly not looking to uh, prop anybody up. I remember a phrase that you taught all of us a long time ago, this concept with regard to India, this what you called strategic benevolence or strategic altruism. In other words, we're gonna help India rise for India's sake, but also uh, because it's good for the United States. That, well, let me ask you, is that, concept, is that a framework, is that gone? Well, I'm not sure it's gone, but it is certainly under pressure. And the point I would make here is that there is a distinction, oddly, between the president and his own administration. Hmm. Uh, there is a president who doesn't seem to care very much about the liberal order, the U.S. role in creating that order, and the advantages of that order for the United States. But there also appears to be his own administration, okay. which seems to be pulling in a different direction, where there are people in his own government who understand that the liberal order is an American asset, who value those alliances, even if they're sometimes compelled to now talk about the costs of those alliances and so on and so forth. And so an open question, I think, at the end of this administration would be, which vision triumphs? Which vision survives? Is it the vision of the administration, which at some levels, wants to protect the world we've inherited? Or is it the vision of the president, which seems to be going in a different direction? But the, but the president uh, seems to be tapping into what he thinks 
is the sentiment of middle America, you know, Rust Belt America, the America where I grew up in, in Western Pennsylvania. He thinks he's channeling people's views. And I, I want to go back to a study that you recently did where you went out with some of your colleagues and you sampled uh, public opinion on these questions, on the U.S. role in the world, on foreign policy, on trade. Yeah. And you did this in, in four in or five counties yes. in Ohio. Yes. And I thought some pretty uh, revealing findings that actually run counter uh, to what the president likes to campaign about in his rallies. And that's absolutely true. I think the president has tapped into a hurt that middle America feels because of structural changes in the American economy. But he does not necessarily speak for their solutions. One of the most interesting things about the Ohio study was that people in Ohio are not looking for America's disengagement from the world. They are not looking for a weakening of our alliances. They are not asking uh, Americans, uh, what is the cost of preserving the international system? Uh, on all these counts, people in Ohio seem to be thinking like liberal internationalists on oh, the coasts. Right. And so maybe that comes as a surprise to at least some people in the White House, but that's the reality. I wanted to ask a question. One of the things I've always admired about you is that you are honest and and clear on hard issues. So I'm going to ask you a hard question. So even though you were always gracious and bipartisan in terms of your character, you were a strong Republican. So what does it feel like now to be in a party that has this set of circumstances with a group of people that are some that have decided to join up, some that have decided to stay out, some have decided to resist? How does that feel, particularly after a period in the 2000s where the Republican Party was united as almost never before? Is it, you know, kind of emotionally challenging? Have you lost friends? Uh, has, has it caused you withdrawal from politics? How do you think about it? Well, Kurt, I have to correct you there. I never joined the Republican Party. Oh, now, formally, now we right? say. Yeah, 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 okay, yeah. But I'll you know say... I, no, but you were a member of the tribe. You had the headband, you had I, the spear. Well, you know. I always thought, having come to this country as an immigrant, uh, that the Republican Party uh, represented the antithesis of the India of the 1980s that I was fleeing. Mm. And so I naturally thought of myself as gravitating to a party that was fundamentally about some ideals, the vision of open markets, you know, small government and so on and so forth. But today it's impossible for anyone like me uh, to join this party or to stay in it. I mean, that is one of the tragedies of what has happened in the last few years. So interesting. Here, say more, please. Well, I think... What Trump has done to the party is that it has destroyed the aspects of the Republican Party that most attracted me. The idea that the United States is a beacon to the world, both for its ideals and for the fact of its power. The fact that the United States wanted to preserve an experiment at home that was fundamentally open to anyone who would become American as a matter of civic commitment. These are two pillars that mm. made the Republican Party so attractive 
in, you know, years gone by. And these are the two pillars that are fundamentally under attack. I have to say, Ashley, I remember there was a line that I we all made fun of at the time. But as I look back on it, it's much more profound to me. And it was a Bush administration um, kind of concept, a balance of power in favor of freedom. Uh, in yeah, retrospect... Gandhi's line. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a... But it's. I think it's probably your and Bob Blackwell and Philip <laughs> Zelikos. But it's a good line yeah. and it's a good concept, right? Yep. Absolutely. And I'm not sure we care about the balance of power anymore, nor do we care about a balance of power that favors freedom. I want to go back to India and do a bit of a, a speed round with you because there's so much we have to to cover and I'll just maybe try to press through it uh, quickly. Um, you and Ambassador Blackwell were the architects of the civil nuclear deal, the kind of landmark uh, energy cooperation deal, which was really about so much more than energy. Um, are you surprised the deal has never been uh, consummated? Uh, does it matter? It doesn't matter to me because when... I wrote the first telegrams at Bob's direction. This was, I think, in late 2002. The vision we had of the deal was to unlock a strategic partnership. Somewhere along the way, we needed to sell the story that this was about reactors and power. Uh, I still believe that we will be able to sell reactors in India, but it was never my interest. And the fact that we haven't achieved it so far doesn't bother me because we've opened so much else. Mm. When Prime Minister Modi was here in the summer of 2016 addressing a joint session of Congress, he, he had a very famous line. He said, we have overcome the hesitations of history between us. What are those hesitations? They were reflected at Kurt's dialogue a few years ago, I think. And was he right? Are those behind us now? I wish they were. I think what he was expressing was an aspiration. And both, you know, I have to compliment both Kurt and you, Rich, for the work that you all did in sort of overcoming these, these hesitations. I remember uh, Kurt's dialogue with India on China, which was actually one of the best things that happened in the Obama administration and the fruits of which are still being enjoyed. Uh, but the hesitations are there and the hesitations are multiplied actually in the Trump era. Does the dominance of trade in the relationship uh, concern you and not just um, positive dialogues about trade, but trade actions, trade enforcement, et cetera? Well, there are certainly serious problems. And I am surprised at the amount of weight we have assigned to trade, particularly in our relations with India, which are not I mean, trade is not fundamental in many ways to the U.S.-India relationship. There are other issues in play. Uh, and so I am, I am sort of surprised at the amount of effort we have put in trying to correct trade problems, which are actually minuscule in the scheme of things. But because of, let me just connect the hesitations to the trade issue, because what you've told us before is that uh, because of our history, because we don't have the habits of cooperation, because of the distrust, the trade doesn't stay in the trade channel. The disputes don't stay there. Just explain what you mean by that. Well, the U.S.-India relationship is a lattice. If you pull on one string, you unravel the entire lattice. Mm -hmm. And we have tried to imagine that we can compartment differences. 
I remember in the Clinton years, in, uh, in the presidency, under the presidency of Bill Clinton, we tried to negotiate our disagreements on non-proliferation, assuming that we could keep them in a, in a box labeled non-proliferation while the rest of the relationship improved. And we found by 1998 that that didn't work. I don't understand why we think we can deal with the problems with trade in a box called trade and not let that threaten the rest of the relationship. Yeah. It's really the analog to what went on, you know, two decades ago. Let me ask you one other uh, uh, tension point, and that is with uh, Russia and the military sales of the S-400 between Moscow and, and New Delhi, the anti-missile defense system. Now, the our Congress has just sent a pretty strong message to Turkey in buying a, a similar system that, that that would come with consequences. I wonder if that was also a, a message to uh, New Delhi. How do, how do we get off this conflict that is that both trains are heading towards each other on this? I don't think there's an easy solution. I think we simply have to accept the reality that India has always had a very robust arms relationship with the Russians. This is a relationship that goes back many decades. They're not going to give it up in a hurry and certainly not because we say so. And so if we continue to press the Indians on this relationship, we are just going to be disappointed. Mm -hmm. And we will hold at risk other opportunities which may be much more fruitful. Mm. I know the Russia relationship is critical, as you suggest. I'm actually a little bit more worried about Iran. I, I think that our approach to Iran, I, I was struck uh, during the dialogues uh, that I was involved with, and I know Rich at the same time, it, it was problematic how hard we pushed India on Iran. And I think now that we're going to be back at it, I think it's likely that this could be an area that's even more fractious than the Russian relationship. And I think the Indians recognize that and are fearful for two reasons. One, because they do not want to lose their ties with Iran. They have a civilizational relationship that goes back centuries. And two, they have a very practical reason why they want the relationship with Iran to be protected. And that is they need Iran for access to Afghanistan. And as long as we have a common US-India interest in success in Afghanistan, I just don't see how we can get that by holding the Indian relationship with Iran at risk. I'd like to ask you a last question about the relationship of peoples between the United States and India. You, you described what, as a young person born in Mumbai who immigrates to the United States, the ideals that attracted you to the United States. I'm curious uh, about what you think the cultural connections are between the United States and India. Uh, it, you know, we don't really share a common passion for a particular sport, mm. although both countries are sports mad. Yes. We enjoy each other's movies, but we have different movie industries more generally. Mm. We love each other's cuisines, but there there isn't much sort of interplay more generally. Is, is there something beyond that that unites at a deeper personal level, uh, the peoples of our two countries? Well, until very recently, uh, the American experience of democracy was really the issue of inspiration for Indians because they saw American democracy as creating opportunities for an enormous diversity of peoples who live in this country. Uh, they saw the American economic experiment as being highly successful. And while they may have had disagreements with specifics of US foreign policy, uh, the United States was really a beacon 
for millions of Indians, especially in the middle class, who looked to the U.S. as being the magnet, you know, that would attract them for education, employment, and for some of us, you know, it would be our, our homes, our adopted homes. I think what has happened in America in the last few years has really called into question uh, the attractiveness of that vision. And my fear is that if we discredit what is most beautiful about the American experiment, our ability to appeal to people from wherever they come and make them Americans because of an allegiance to a set of ideals, if we lose that, then I think we've lost something truly precious about the United States. Mm. That's a great note to, to end on. And Ashley, we read all your stuff. We're looking forward to whatever you're working on next. What is coming up next for you? Well, I have actually a report that I'm looking to complete on the Indo-Pacific and then a book on missile defense. Wow. So. Okay. We'll be waiting. Uh, <laughs> but thank, thank you for all you've done over the years. And thank, uh, you. thank you for being with us here today. We really appreciate it. And thank you to all of our subscribers for listening. Uh, please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next time on Tea Leaves. Thank you. Thank you.